Uh, we are in week two, Seek Weeks. Pastor George brought us a message last week from the Psalms about committing everything to the Lord, and he will help you in it. And today we're going to be in the Psalms again, Psalm 24. And um, let's go ahead and jump in where you see the bold text. Please read it aloud. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. And now we're going to read from 2 Samuel 6, when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the Ark of God. Let's read. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the Ark of God. Then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because the ark of God was left there. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. Let's read. After the men who were carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy in the blowing of ram's horns. God, anoint your words to our hearts today. Use me, Lord, as your vessel in this place to bless this family, Jesus. I pray that each of us would be able to take steps deeper into your presence. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. You may be seated. Psalm 24 is a popular psalm. You've probably heard many worship songs that come from the text that we just read. You've probably heard, um, give us clean hands, give us pure hearts, let us not lift our souls to another. God, let us be a generation that seeks your face. Um, you may have heard later in this psalm, and we didn't read to that point, uh, where it says, um, uh, lift up your heads, open the doors, let the king of glory come in. That's part three of Psalm 24. It is a popular scripture, and it is broken down into three parts. The first part is the creation hymn. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And we read that together this morning, and um, we're talking about God, the creator. The second part is a song of ascent. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can enter into God's holy place? Who can stand before him in his holiness? And this is a psalm that people would sing on pilgrimages to Jerusalem when they were coming for festivals and feasts. And then in this third part, we're talking about God, the king, the coming king that we're expecting and awaiting, the king of glory. Um, open the gates. Let the king of glory come in. You know, this, this first part, uh, where it's talking about creation and that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, it reminds us that God is the owner of the world. It exists by his creation. He orders it and holds it together. The USA doesn't, the UN doesn't, the EU doesn't own the world. 
Uh, Our culture doesn't own the world. China doesn't. Hollywood doesn't. Amazon doesn't own the world. And it's, uh, it's important for us to remind our souls that big pharma doesn't own the world. Big oil doesn't own the world. The NFL. FIFA doesn't own the world. God does. He is its king. In fact, the way this is worded, um, we, it's, it's helpful for us to understand the context of the people who would have sung this song, who would have proclaimed this song around Canaan. What this psalm is, it's a black eye and it's a slap in the face to Baal, the false god of the day. In the, um, in the, the language of the, the Ugaritic religious texts, there is what we call the Baal cycle, where it's the story of how Baal became the king of the gods and why people look to Baal in their prayers and in their worship, this false god. And what happens in the, the Baal cycle is... Uh, that Baal conquers this god of the seas and river, this chaotic tempest god called Nam. And I'm saying god with a little g here. You know what I'm saying. And uh, Baal conquers him. And and if if you saw what we read there, it said, the earth, the Lord, everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. God overcame and overpowered the chaos of the deep. And it's a slap in the face as those who would sing it in that day to the creation texts and the Baal cycle texts that say that Baal conquered the seas and the river to establish his power. And then it goes on later and we'll get there in just a second. Part two is is what we focused on there. Who can climb God's mountain? It's about the people who make that confession, who confess that God is the creator. The earth is the the Lord. We are the Lord's. God ordered this planet. And it's those that would confess that and want to order their lives according to his will and according to his purposes. He's the sustainer. The earth is not on a shelf. It's literally held in space by forces of physics that derive their power from something from someone. Not only is it just held in in space, it is among systems and galaxies and spinning like a basketball on somebody's fingertip. And it's for those that confess it's God who ordered this chaos, that, that made all beauty and all life with designer's intent, with purpose for creation, and those that seek the presence of that king. I want to be in his presence and preparing for his coming, the coming of the king of glory. Those people that want a life like that, just like creation, ordered by the will and the word of the Lord, seeking his face. And part three asks, who is this king of glory? And it's the Lord whose presence we long for. So we kind of see Psalm 24 broken down into three parts. It's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. And in it, there's just another black eye to, to Baal in that third part. When it says, lift up your heads, you gates. Um, what, what's happening is in the Baal cycle, when Nam calls out Baal and, and says, I'm going to fight you. Baal's got his crew and they all put their heads between their knees. And he says to his crew, lift up your heads. I'm going to go fight. Nam. And it's David again, taking the, the false belief of the culture and singing about God 
the true Lord, the true Savior, the true Creator, the true King. And, um, and it's just a, just a beautiful thing that David did there. I uh, believe that we have a high calling to live in the presence of the King of glory. A high calling. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can climb the mountain of God? You and I have a high calling to live in the presence of the King of glory. To live glorious lives filled with the Holy Spirit. To live glorious lives touched by the manifest presence of God constantly. I don't just mean the presence of God that is surrounding us, omnipresent. God's everywhere. There's the the highest mountain, the depths of the sea. Where can we go to escape him? Nowhere. I'm talking about the manifest presence and power of God that seeks to dwell among us. Um, I love a good hike. I'm a, an amateur hiker, very extremely amateur, capital A amateur. I've, I've gotten to climb mountains uh, with Candace. We went to Oregon and Washington. We've been to North Carolina, and we've done some big hikes out there. I've, uh, on missions trips, gotten to do uh, hikes in El Salvador. I got to climb a volcano there, super awesome. Uh, I got, got to climb a, a mountain in Colombia with a team from Trinity Youth, and um, and recently, I got to do some hikes with my brother who lives in Hawaii. Uh, he has lived in Hawaii for um, about 10 years now, and it is just the biggest blessing to my life because I've gotten to go out there a couple times now for his wedding, and, um, and it's just great free place to stay, uh, get to drive his car. If you can get there, you, you got it set. So go out to... Um, Go out to Hawaii, and he said, you know, there's a couple hikes that people talk about that I've never done here, and let's do them. So we did this triple peak Olamana hike that was just unbelievable, and we had to hike about 15 miles round trip to do it, covered in blisters on my feet. Uh, saw a wild boar, and we had to run. It was terrifying. And, um, and then we thought we were, I don't know, we got a little too big for our britches, and... Um, we decided we were going to hike this Koalau Trail, which isn't for amateurs. It's for people that have hiking boots with spikes all over them and, and you know, sharp metal things that would just dig in to the earth. We said, oh, we're, gonna, we're fine. We're fine. We're going to do it. So we, we climbed this, this uh, Koalau Trail. I want you to see it here. It was, um, it was wild. It was wild. And on the way up, honestly, it was difficult. My brother tried to quit about four times, and we had, um, we had a little meeting on the side of the mountain where I was yelling at him a little bit, like, no, we're halfway there. Don't give up. Let's go. And, um, and I was a little too proud. And that comes before a fall. So we, did, we actually did okay. We got there. We got all the way up this mountain. We're holding on to, you know, branches and things as we climb. We're literally on the side of a cliff for half the journey. We get to the top of uh, this thing, and, and they call it the polypuka. Puka means hole in Hawaiian. And there's just this, this God-made hole in the side of this mountain face in let me tell you, the wind was whipping through there. You wouldn't believe it. I mean, like no wind, you step in front of it and it's like you're at, uh, I can't remember what that place called where they blow you up in the air with the big fans. It was insane. And, um, and what happened was we're at the top, taking some pictures, we're enjoying it in this thick cloud rolls in and we are in the cloud and it starts raining on us. And it's raining on this soft, dirt all around us and it's turning it into mud 
And when we, and the rain stopped, it rained for about 20 minutes. We started on our way back and I'm right by that hole. And uh, all of a sudden, all the dirt that was beneath my feet gave way. And I fell and I, I tumbled head over feet two times. And in my mind, I'm thinking, this is it. This is it. And it was honestly, it was very scary. And um, I, I came to a, I kind of saw it out of the side of my eye, uh, a small like sapling coming out of the dirt. And I praise the Lord. And I, I run into it and I grab it. And it was, it was a great moment for a split second. And then I feel it give way. And that was the worst moment. And, um, and so I tumble some more and I, I run into a tree with my shoulder and I stopped. Praise the Lord or I'd still be falling right now down this mountain. The Lord was with me. He spared me. It was a really scary moment, and um, it humbled us. We're never doing that hike again. We, uh, we debated whether we would tell our wives for a while, and, um, and so we made, it, uh, we made it out. I was covered in dirt, covered in blood on my arm and my, my hip, and I was just so thankful for that tree I ran into. And, um, and so I'm a very amateur hiker. I would never do, I would never do a steep ascent somewhere. I don't know if you um, have followed much of the climbs of Mount Everest in recent years. Highest point on the planet, over 29,000 feet tall, the highest independent peak, uh, part of the, the Himalaya mountain range. After this peak on the Himalayas and that mountain range, you have to drop down about 6,000 feet to get to the next highest mountain in the world. All right, it's, it's the highest mountain by a long shot. And um, to climb it, it is very demanding. The demands are uh, about $75,000 to start to join a climbing expedition. It costs about $10,000 to get a permit to even approach the mountain. It takes about 60 days, 10 days to the camp, 20 days up the mountain, 20 days back down, 10 days from the camp back to civilization. It, um, it's has claimed a lot of lives that are unrecoverable. In fact, many people have died trying to retrieve bodies of people who have died on Mount Everest. It, is, it comes with great, great, great risk. Um, some of you may have seen this viral photo from a few years ago um, when 80 people made a traffic jam at the top right by this thing called the Hillary Step. And you think, there's only 6,000 people who have ever summited Mount Everest, how are there that many people on the top of it on one day? Well, it's because the, the jet stream that goes over this mountain for most of the year is so intense, you can't even approach it. You can't climb it. There's only a short window in May and a short window in September where it's possible. It's called the, the weather window. And in May in 2019, there were just about three days for people to summit it. And so on those three days and one day, the weather ended up being, being even worse. And so it was about two days where all the people that were going to climb it that year were on Mount Everest. And so there was a, a, a climber who got scared at this blind step you have to take. And she froze and she was there for about two hours and clogged up the top of the mountain. And it became a very, very scary and difficult day for people on the top of Mount Everest. Um, the last 3,000 feet on Everest are called the death zone. Once you get above 26,000 feet, every cell in your body begins to die. It's a race against the clock. And it's because of oxygen 
deprivation. Um, air at sea level is about 21% oxygen. Up Once you get to 26,000 feet, it's less than 5%. They say it's like, it's like running on a treadmill, breathing through a straw. In fact, if you and I were to get teleported to the top of Mount Everest right now without our bodies going through an adaption process, we would be dead within three minutes because your body has to adapt on your way up. Um, birds, there's only three birds that can fly that high. Most, uh, if they were to try to fly that high, would go instantly blind from retina. Their, the lenses on their retinas aren't thick enough. It's difficult on top of the mountain. But the people that summit it, they breathe rare air, air that not many people have breathed before. They get a view that is rare, that literally only 6,000 people have ever had before. Um, When we approach this text, who can ascend the mountain of God? There's a built-in allusion here to Abraham who climbed Mount Moriah and, and met with God and Moses, who climbed Mount Sinai and met with God and, and saw the, the, just the, the edge of the tail of the fringe of God's glory. And, uh, and Jacob, who, who God said, come, uh, come up Bethel and meet with me. And, and we see this uh, historical illusion that's happening that all the people are thinking about. Who can be in the presence of an almighty God? And let me just say that it is a demanding, a very demanding question. Who can do it? Who can do it? Um, The first thought I want to give you today is that his presence demands priority. Presence demands priority. Everest doesn't adapt to the climber's lifestyle. Climbers have to adapt to it. We can live this life in a way where we, wor- we give worship to God that he will actually reject. Actually reject. We see this in scripture. Um, the one who ordered the universe has to come first in the order of our heart. He demands priority. David went about it the wrong way. We read this, uh, we read this passage where when David became king, first thing he did, he said, where is the Ark of the Covenant? Where is this manifest presence of God that's supposed to be in the most holy place in the tabernacle before the temple is built? Where is it? And they found out, okay, it's 50 kilometers away. It's 31 miles away in the the house of Abinadab. So they go to it and they, they say, let's go, let's get it. But they don't treat The presence of God, the mercy seat, the throne of God on earth is a good way to think about the Ark of the Covenant. They don't treat it the way Numbers 4, God told the Israelites to treat it. They tried to fit the presence of God into their style. He tried to fit the presence of God into um, his kingdom, kind of attaching God's presence like a good luck charm to the throne of David, rather than realizing this is the throne. God's presence... um, is what it's all about. It wasn't uh, made for us. We were made for it. We were made for the presence of God. And so uh, we kind of see a parallel here in living a life that doesn't prioritize God. Cain, Esau, Samson, Saul, Uzzah, Ananias, and Sapphira. See moments where people are trying to give offerings to God that do not honor him. They don't go about it the way 
that he has prescribed. And David was going about the presence of God the wrong way. He had to understand that it was the throne of the true king reigning over his kingdom, not that good luck charm to attach to his throne. And, um, and I think he, what happened was when, when uh, they had traveled 45 kilometers, right? They have 10% of the journey left to go. They get to this threshing floor. And a threshing floor is a place of judgment and separation. And Jesus is, is the great thresher. The Bible says he's come to baptize us in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he comes with a winnowing fork in his hand, separating the chaff from the wheat. And they they get to this threshing floor, and David's heart is sifted. And what the people are doing is sifted. And um, Uzzah lays his hand, not on the poles of the ark, but on the ark, touches God's presence without fear, and he fell over dead next to the presence of God. And, and in that moment, David was so frustrated and so upset, leaves the ark at a, a person's house there, Obed-Edom. And a few months later, they see everything in Obed-Edom's life is blessed. His favorite football team won the Super Bowl. His, um, he, I mean, he is just, everything about his life. Blessing, 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 blessing. David says, all right, we're going to go back and we're going to do this God's way. Before he was moving the ark like a Philistine would have moved the, uh, one of their idols around. And he, was, uh, he was, was not operating according to the instruction of God's word. So before, they had the ark on a flatbed truck, but now it was being carried by the priests. So before, they were making good time. Now, they were making the time good. They were offering sacrifices to God on the journey. Before, they had efficiency They weren't carrying it. It was on a cart. They could move quicker. Oxen were carrying it. They were really rolling. They had efficiency, but now they have intimacy because the presence of God is with them. God is coming to the, returning to the tabernacle where they can enjoy his favor and pleasure. Before they had convenience, but now they have communion. Before David was suited up with 30,000 soldiers in his battle gear, and now David is stripped down with the priests, just wearing a simple linen ephod. No kingly crown, no royal jewels, no colorful garments. He's wearing a white t-shirt, stripped down in worship, vulnerable and exposed and open before the Lord. Before they were singing, but now they are rejoicing, the text says. Think about that for a second. Before they treated God as familiar, now their hearts trembled in fear of his power. They were stricken and overwhelmed with who he truly is as the king that has ordered the universe. The king who demands our obedience and commands our hearts. Before his presence was a piece of luggage. Now his presence is the destination. Now his presence is the throne. Before they put him in the trunk. Now, he's leading the way. They've attached themselves to him, not attached him to them. And I think this is important. God could have said, ah, you you guys aren't really doing this right. You're not considering my desire. You're not really putting me first. But you know what? Saul didn't even care when he was king. Saul left left my presence, you know, 50 kilometers away. And you're doing much better than Saul, so that's fine. Just, no. 
And so we're going to establish your kingdom, David. We're going to thresh you and, and see what kind of king you're going to be. Are you going to be a king that puts me first and does things my way? They stopped and adjusted themselves on the journey. They, they came into awe of God's absolute holiness. And I think this is important for us to think about our lives. God wants us to have lives filled with his glory, the king of glory. And there's a difference between a chair and a throne. And you know what the difference is? Who's sitting on it? See, our lives were designed to be thrones, but a lot of us have turned our lives into chairs because God's not sitting on the throne of our heart. Just ordinary falling short of the glory of God, falling short of the glory of God, falling short of the glory of God, because we haven't given God his rightful place in our lives. Romans 6 says, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all of us live lives that aren't glorious because we've, we fell short in our sin, but when we turn to Jesus, he restores us. He creates a home for himself. And what happens is our lives get filled with his glory. So the manifest presence of God is all about in your life. As we want to be lovers of his presence, as we want to ascend the hill of the Lord, the first thought was his presence demands priority. And the, the second thought I want to give you is that his presence draws us into a process, draws us into process. You know, high altitude blessings, getting that amazing view, experiencing something that few have experienced, it takes process-oriented climbing. I mentioned this a moment ago about Everest. You can't just jump to the top of the Everest right now um, because you'll end up with AMS, acute mountain sickness. We call it altitude sickness. And what happens is in your body, in your bloodstream, you have plasma and you have white blood cells and you have red blood cells and they carry hemoglobin and, and um, hemoglobin carries oxygen and it oxygenates your blood. And what happens is as you, as you climb to higher and higher altitudes where there, there's less oxygen, you have these little sensors in your body, um, uh, these, these chemoreceptors they're called, and, and they recognize, hey, there's less, there's less oxygen here. And they will start to physiologically change your body and reduce the amount of plasma that's inside of you and increase the amount of red blood cells and hemoglobin. So you don't need as much, as much oxygen. That's why climbers have to train in high altitude and then they have to go on a journey that takes about a month to get up Mount Everest. We have to adapt to the altitude. And, and I, uh, I want you to think about this in this way. As you live your life and you're going through a process of discipleship and spiritual formation, being formed into the, the image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, you are adapting to his presence. I'm adapting to the presence of God. I'm prioritizing his presence and I'm adapting to his presence. And so when people ask you, why are you in the word and why are you in prayer and why are you fasting? We don't do that. That's not normal. That's unnatural. I'm adapting to my new normal, my new natural I'm in the changing room. I'm taking off the old nature and I'm putting on the spirit. I am uh, in, in church now on Sunday instead of at brunch. Why don't you come out with us anymore? Because I'm adapting to the presence of God. You're at, on a Wednesday night, you're at seek night, fighting the traffic, doing your homework early. 
Bible study, you're doing growth track early on Sunday mornings in February, growth groups, mentorship, you're doing internships. Why are you living this way? I'm adapting to the presence of God. You know, adapting, it's just like climbing Mount Everest. It doesn't happen alone. That type of transformation is a team event. There's actually only one person who's ever climbed Mount Everest by themselves. They call it alpine climbing without the aid of base camps that have already been set up and trails that have already been carved out and hooks and ropes that have already been established and ladders. Only one person that's ever done that out of the 6,000 that have summited it. Because transformation like this, climbing the mountain of the Lord, requires the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I think it's important for us to go on this journey that is difficult of spiritual development and spiritual formations and working on spiritual disciplines Um, and not just being believers in name or, or saying, yes, I'm a Christian, but not living a life that's seeking his face and pursuing the presence of God. It's important because it's changing our souls to hold more of him. Just like the, the hemoglobin increase in your, in your red blood, we're changing our souls. An, another way we interpret Psalm 24, where it says we don't lift up our souls to something false or lift up our souls to an idol, is we do not lead our souls into vanity or vain things. You can lead your soul. And when you lead your soul through spiritual disciplines, into the presence of God, you create space for him to manifest himself in your mind and in your heart and in your behavior. This is why we read the Bible. It's why we fast. It's why we pray. It's why we meet here and worship God together and hear his word. Because we're creating opportunity to be changed, to hold more of him, to be more like him, to breathe in his presence. So often when people had a revelation of God in the Old Testament, their response was the same. They caught a glimpse of God's glory. They caught a vision of the Lord, and they, they said, I'm dead. I'm a goner. Surely I'm dead. I'm unclean. I can't be here. I, I'm, I'm not able to withstand your holiness. I've seen God, and I'll die. It's just like you and I jumping to the top of Mount Everest right now. Spiritual disciplines help us become comfortable in God's presence. Spiritual disciplines lead us to a place where we um, can receive more of him and be more like him to radiate his glory, to reflect his glory. They're important. Um, The third thought I want you to have today is that his presence delivers joy. It requires, demands prioritization and for us to adapt to it, but also his presence delivers joy. Psalm 116.11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I, I just want to repeat what we read earlier. Who can ascend his, his holy hill? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, does not trust in an idol, and does not swear by a false god, or tells no lies. They will receive blessing from the Lord in vindication from God, their Savior. Clean-handed. We're called to be clean-handed. That means we're innocent of doing wrong. 
When we've done wrong with our hands, we've uh, caused pain to other people, we've hurt other people, maybe you've been a brawler in your life, maybe you've been a fighter, uh, maybe you've um, uh, done some things with your hands that God uh, would not be pleased with, maybe you robbed that bank or that convenience store, maybe you... um, Maybe you've gone into search bars and you've typed in things you shouldn't have searched for and swiped and scrolled the wrong way. God can forgive you and give you clean hands before him. Any wrongdoing you've done with these hands, the Lord can redeem and the Lord can purify. Um, He meets us in that. And, And maybe you haven't robbed that bank, but every time you've driven by that bank, you've coveted the money inside and you haven't been pure hearted. God calls us to be clean-handed and pure-hearted. Maybe you haven't, uh, you haven't, you know, punched your neighbor out, but every time you see him, you're cursing him in your mind and you're cursing him in your heart. God calls us to be pure-hearted, not only in appearance of holiness, but actually a singleness of devotion unto him, where we're bringing every compartment of our life and we're making it wholly surrendered and devoted to him. That he is the Lord of our entertainment. He's the Lord of our relationships. And he's our Lord at work. Wholehearted with integrity. That word integrity comes from the word integer. One. Complete integer. Not fractioned. Um, Pure hearted. And and I just think it's important for us each to be terrified to reach out. And try to guide God's presence to bless our life when our life is not surrendered to God. We should be afraid to ask a holy God to mix himself with with things that oppose him and things that are contradictory to him. That should should make us remember the story of Uzzah who fell dead next to the presence of God. Um, In the, the third requirement here is that we trust no idols. We don't lead our souls into vanity, but we we. We don't build our souls on the things that are crumbling, on a broken foundation, but we build our souls on the will of the king, not on culture, not on the favor of man. We do not build our souls on the favor of man. We trust no idols, and in the fourth requirement is that we live no lies. We are constantly weeding out untruth from our hearts. We don't let any alternative facts come to roost there because they they, you know, scratch our itching ears. We, we root out untruth. Your morality is important. Your ideology is important. Your lifestyle, it impacts your experience of God and your effectiveness for God. Don't allow any lies that scratch sinful itches to take root in your heart. Um, it's important that we live no lies. When we have that kind of life, that righteous life, um, what does the Bible say? It says the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. It brings effectiveness. It brings power to our life. Um, I pray that you would be a person of his presence. So the big question, what it all comes down to is who can climb the hill? Who can stand in his holy place? And this question really only has one answer. None of us have clean hands, totally pure heart, have totally lived no lies and weeded out all untruth, have, have totally tru- uh, trusted in no idols except for Jesus. 
And so this scripture is really calling us to two things. One, it's calling for us to meet Jesus in this process, that he would be our forgiver, that his righteousness would be applied to our lives. And the second thing, beyond, beyond it speaking to perfection of behavior, this scripture is calling the disposition of our hearts to be oriented towards God, not towards Baals, not towards the culture, not towards selfishness, not towards anything unclean or impure, but our hearts to desire him and be oriented towards him. We all need Jesus to enter in with confidence to the throne room. We need Jesus. Um, the worship team's coming now, and I just I want to tell you a story about the Jungfrau, I'm sorry, Jungfrau Railway. This is on, uh, going up the Jungfrau Mountain on the border of Switzerland and Germany. It's one of the highest peaks of the Alps, and um, there, were, there was a time when you could only access the top of this mountain by an intense hike, an intense mountain climb out there with ice axes going up and going up and going up. And, um, and then in 1913, 1912 rather, this railway that took 20 years to build was opened. It went through the mountain and there was seven sections to it and it kept going higher and higher and higher until the point where it went up uh, uh, all the, almost all the way, just about 200 feet from the top of the Jungfrau Peak. This was, they called it, the, um, the architectural achievement of the century, 20 years to build. And in 1913, after it was open, two men were on the train up the mountain and they had a uh, conversation that was later recorded in the New Yorker. And this is what their conversation was. The one man was from New York City and one man was a local. And the local said, this train is a desecration of a holy mountain. These tourists that are coming up here that are complaining of how cold it is and they're getting sick from the altitude, they do not deserve to be here. They're irreverent. They don't know enough about the mountain. They haven't done anything to make them worthy of a climb and a view like this. And for years and years, this has only been accessible to those that would make the sacrifice of climbing it. And um, he compared it to those that were going into the temple, changing money and taking advantage of others, and Jesus coming in and purifying the temple and cleansing it because it had been desecrated. He said, this mountain is being desecrated by these tourists. And the man from New York City was listening to him, and um, they came to a place where you could see this beautiful waterfall. And everybody came to the side of the train and the the Bavarian man said to the man from New York City, come on, let's go look. The man from New York City sat up and the Bavarian man realized he was crippled. And he got up and he limped over to the side of the train and he saw the waterfall and returned to his seat. And the first man said, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize your injury. And he said, it's okay, let me tell you a story. He said, four years ago, I came to this mountain and I, I was only supposed to be here a day, but it was so beautiful. I canceled the rest of my trip and I used the money for the rest of my experience in Europe to hire some mountain guides and train and climb Jungfrau. And to climb Jungfrau, you had to go over a couple snow bridges to cross these crevasses. And, and he said, we were 
we were going across a snow bridge and it gave way beneath us and I fell. And I was attached to the ropes, but I still fell quite a ways and I landed on a cliff and I shattered my hip. And they had to carry me all the way back down the mountain. And I had surgery and as I was healing, they sat me in front of a window looking at the mountain. And for four months, every day, I said, I will make it to the top of that mountain. He returned to New York City and had to have more surgery done. And they said, we're sorry to tell you this, but you will never climb again. Never climb again. And three years later, they opened the Jungfrau Railway. And he boarded the train that day and he had this conversation with the man. And, and he, he said to the man, he said, you know, God is equally concerned about the prevention of the desecration of his temple as he is with the consecration of his people. He is at work to purify us so that we can be with him. Not to look at people and say, you're not the elect, you're not the elite, you're not special enough to climb my mountain, you're not good enough to be with me, but to meet us in our broken hips, in our crippled legs, and bring the righteousness of his son and help us enter. And he, he uh, made it to the top of the mountain that day. And he saw a beautiful view. And it's an important reminder for us in this place. God calls us to have clean hands and a pure heart. To not lift up our souls to an idol. To not speak what is false. But even in our imperfections, he creates a way for us to be with him and enter into his presence. I want to invite you to stand this morning. It's important for God to teach us to climb. It's important for God to develop the character of his son in us. Once his righteousness is applied to our lives at salvation, he wants to work that salvation out in purity, in holiness. It's important. He meets us in that. We experience the power and the effectiveness of our righteousness when we honor him with our lives. But mostly, we become lovers of his presence. We learn to be lovers of his presence. We learn to appreciate the mountain of God. We learn to enter in and breathe that rare air. Jesus, as we worship you this morning, God, I pray that you would help us become adapted to your presence, that we would take off the old, put on the spirit nature, Jesus, and be new people. God, that we would lean into things like spiritual disciplines, Lord. God, that we wouldn't live this life, Lord, and treat our salvation as just a, a get out of hell card, Lord. But God, you would learn to, or help us learn to be prepared for your presence that we will be in forever. That we could catch a glimpse of your glory that would change us, God. Lord, you, you would give us experiences of you that would change our appetite, that we could never go back to those unsatisfying things of the world. Lord, I pray for each person in this place, God, that they, they would be people that by the grace of your son could climb your mountain. Lord, could, could partner with you that there would be works that accompany their faith. And Jesus, they could walk in God. Lord, with a pure heart, with clean hands, 
with a heart that only names you, Jesus, and seek your face. And for that person in the room that's just like, if I was in the Bible, they would kick me out. There's no way I'm making it up a mountain. I'm going to fall, fall off a cliff like you did, Anthony, in Hawaii. For that person today, God, I pray that they would receive from you what each and every one of us need, which is redemption, the redemption of their soul. And Jesus, I pray, God, that in this moment, each person would admit their need for you. You don't delight in, in the legs of man, God, and, and how good we can climb. Lord, you delight yourself, God, in, in the redemption that's applied to our hearts by your son. We admit our need for you, Jesus. We place our faith in you and we believe. And God, we choose to follow you, to live life your way, to order our lives. just like the creator of the world ordered this universe in a way that pleases you according to your will. God, I thank you for salvation in this place and each person that's being redeemed, even in this moment. God, I pray that you would make us people of your presence, Lord, that live for your presence, prioritize it and enjoy it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen.